0: Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong.
1: And I'm Jessie Chazesky-K. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We will touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about how AI is chipping away at a key problem that will be important for new drug discovery.
0: And then we talk about how robots are replacing news reporters. Well, not really. Let's get started.
1: Susan, I have to admit as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about research questions in astronomy, when it comes to topics in biology or medicine, I don't have a strong foundation, but I do find the work fascinating nonetheless. Well, I think
0: a lot of people are drawn to biology and medicine because it's the science that is potentially the most personal to us. We probably have all watched a loved one suffer from disease and wish that we could make it all better. And I'm just really glad that biostatistics as a field in the intersection of biology and statistics has long been using our weapon of choice, statistics, to chip away at some of the really tough problems in medicine. And you're about to tell us something about drug development and statistics.
1: Indeed, yes. uh, Drug discovery and pharmaceutical development is an area that many biostatisticians, as you might imagine, gravitate toward. But until I read the recent New York Times article that's titled Making New Drugs with a Dose of Artificial Intelligence, I hadn't really considered the details about what, what really goes into this process. But the article focuses on one aspect of drug discovery, and it's related to something called the protein folding problem.
0: Ah, the classic protein folding problem, which sounds abstract and perhaps unrelated to drugs at first, um, in a nutshell, it's about predicting the physical structure of a protein um, that is its shape in three dimensions. And by the way, just to get a good picture of how complicated these structures are, you should really Google protein folding and look at some of those images that come up in the Google image search. There are these coils and ribbons, and I think they're called side chains, I probably should stop saying anything more so I don't embarrass myself with my lack of knowledge of the subject matter. But the importance of protein folding prediction, as far as we know, is that if you can do it really well, you're better able to understand the way that other molecules can attach to the protein. And that's really important when it comes to developing a new drug.
1: Yeah, so if they can figure out how to get a drug to bind to a protein, it can then affect how the proteins operate in your body. So it's pretty interesting and, and important. Uh, well, there's this conference that's held every two years, and it's called the Critical Assessment of Techniques for Protein Structure Prediction, or CASP. Um, and the most recent conference was held in December, just this past year, 2018. And the conference itself sounds really cool because it has kind of a a Kegel competition feel to it where um, it looks like it was six to eight months before the conference, the CASP organizers post um, sequences of unknown protein structures for, for modeling and then the different research groups from around the world can test their methods on the data and then come together for this conference to see how everyone does. That sounds like a really good competition
0: and just with sort of an impactful results.
1: Yeah, agreed, exactly. So the, the conference website lists a number of questions that um, they're planning to focus on, things like uh, how much can current refinement methods improve the accuracy of models or how effective are approaches to predicting protein three-dimensional um, contacts So what happened at this conference? Uh, Yeah, well, it turned out that the AI lab DeepMind, which is owned by Google's parent company, was apparently far and away the top performer, and they had nearly twice the prediction accuracy for for predicting these protein shapes, as was expected by the field experts.
0: Twice? Wow, that's really remarkable.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, so some of the the other participants, um, I guess, were were rather down. Um, so one of the researchers quoted in the New York Times article, um, who's a, a Harvard Systems Biology Fellow, Mohammed Alkarashi, said uh, he had the the quote was, "I was surprised and deflated." I, I will say, even though it was a, a kind of a, a sad quote, he did have a lot of interesting things to say, and actually wrote a, a blog post about this conference. But um, but yeah. The, the machines won out again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think we should feel positive because when science progresses, right, even if we're not the ones who are getting the credit, we're sort of all gaining from the experience. So I think you should feel pretty proud just for, just for humanity's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But what does uh, DeepMind use for modeling on the back end?
1: It seems to be the trend these days. Uh, DeepMind uses deep learning, and the article actually suggests it, it started with a hackathon in London, which led to some of the researchers and computer scientists to develop some game that, um, that simulated the tasks associated with this fo- uh, this protein folding problem, and uh, and then they got the game to learn to play on its own, and then it turned into this full blown research project.
0: That's so interesting. This actually reminds me of something else. Um, I saw in the news sort of many years ago that there was this crowdsource effort for predicting protein structures. And again, it's related to a game. So researchers made this online game called Foldit and anybody can go and download this game. I think you can still do it today. So uh, if you were interested and you wanted to get in the competition, um, you can definitely go to sort of fold.it, that's the website. Um, they made it competitive because, again, as we know, competition breeds progress. And in this game, you get to fold your protein and get scored based on how close this folding structure um, compares to, say, actual protein folding behavior. So it's funny because, like, to me, as as an educator, I think about How can we possibly explain the rules of a game like this, right? What is the way that we can convey all this information, which presumably is very, very complicated, but in the instructions on the website, there are just three simple rules when it comes to scoring. First of all, the more compact your protein is, the higher your score, The second one is a bit more complicated. It has to do with the orientation of hydrophobic parts of the protein. So the parts that don't like water and sort of how they have to be turned away. And the third rule is about the closeness of the atoms basically that they don't really want to be too close. So if they are, then your score goes down. So the, the way that this works is you're like dragging things in this visual interface. And then as you drag the different chains of that protein, um, your score sort of gets updated based on how well it matches up with these three rules.
1: Wow. Oh, that's interesting. And you said it's still going on?
0: Yes. As far as I can tell on their FAQs list, it says that they're still going on and there's still a leaderboard that has updates as of sort of the latest time right now. So I'm guessing it's still Mm -hmm. ongoing. And they say that their long term goal is really to have humans. um, Actually, they say they want to show that humans can do better than machines when it comes to predicting protein Mm -hmm. folding. So this is kind of contradicting or maybe at odds with what we said earlier. And they're thinking that you know what we can do is just sort of use the crowd to to predict folding proteins that that don't even have known structure that's sort of their very ambitious goal, and they also think that maybe someday we can use these kinds of efforts to design brand new proteins to and i 'm quoting directly from their website to disable a virus or scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so beyond drug discovery, doing even other things.
1: Wow, it sounds like a noble effort. Uh, I gotta love it when the games are actually helping to solve real world problems. (laughs) That's a game that we can all chip into play. Yeah, exactly.
0: As machines get better and better at automating tasks, we hear more and more about how we're going to get replaced by automatons in the not-so-distant future. The sentiment of, we're going to go and lose our jobs, just seems to permeate through multiple industries. And one of the ways in which robots are replacing humans is journalism. Really? No, no, no. Of course not. I (laughs) am exaggerating a little bit. Um, Not yet. Not all of journalism. But... Uh, parts of journalism. Certainly machines have become more and more prevalent. And it's funny because we joked, I think in one of our early episodes, that it's quite possible that you're not hearing Jesse and me talking. You're
1: hearing some computer simulated vocals that sound just like us. Yes. Thankfully, we're not quite there yet. Um, we're still, we are still get to, um, to personally delight you with our presence on Fridays. <laughs> well uh
0: in some aspects of journalism certainly things are changing there is now a term called automated journalism which is basically the process of having a computer go from data to a news article with little to no human intervention and just to throw a number out there it's thought that nowadays about a third of the content published by bloomberg news uses some form of automation now, as we know, Bloomberg News does a lot of financial reporting, and of course, that kind of recording, reporting really depends on teasing apart a lot of important numbers from quarterly earnings reports and so on.
1: Yeah, and these earning reports tend to be long and wordy. I'm guessing that it's not a, a fun read, even for seasoned professionals. Exactly. And
0: we know that the problem with routine tasks is our minds, our human feeble minds, get tired and so we start making mistakes if we are doing something um, again and again for a long period of time. Now computers are different. They don't get bored, they don't get tired, and they can be trained to extract important features from text through natural language processing. So when it comes to releasing news, about summarizing earnings reports, there's just a few key pieces of information that need to be identified, pulled out, and then they can generate the article. So just to give us a flavor of what this tastes like, um, here's a snippet of one automatically generated article from the Associated Press. This is about Rite Aid's third quarter profits. And it says, Right Aid Corp. on Wednesday reported fiscal third quarter net income of $81 million. The Camp Hill, Pennsylvania-based company said it had a profit of $0.08 per share. Earnings adjusted to account for discontinued operations came to less than $0.01 on a per share basis. And it goes on for a couple more sentences. So not too long, um, sort of gets straight to the point and reports the numbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, the writing itself actually does seem rather straight to the point, matter of fact, and I I can totally see why computers would be completely capable of writing this.
0: Yep, and because earnings reports tends to be rather terse anyway, this sort of low-hanging fruit when it comes to sort of uh, journalism is kind of where they're starting from. And in truth, embellishment of such news articles about earnings can just be really counterproductive, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is actually kind of why I think. Um, we'll- Automated journalism has found its beginnings here. And we talked about how humans can make mistakes when they get tired. Um, Accuracy here is important and it is definitely one of the benefits that we are seeing with automated journalism. Francesco Marconi, who is the Associated Press's um, strategy manager, said that they've seen a decrease in the error rate of financial news coverage um, upon adoption of these uh, automated reporting techniques. And Beyond just earnings reports, there are companies now that even have machine learning based algorithms that'll tune into these earnings calls, you know, like the calls where the CEO does a little dance to (laughs) report on their financial status, take some incoming questions, try to make themselves sound pretty good and the company's in great shape. They have to do that kind of thing. Um, Now there are these companies that will perform sentiment analysis on the calls, on the actual um, discussion that are happening to to track the positive and negative sentiment as the call progresses, to sort of help investors give them insight on whether a company might be doing well or not. And there's one company called Prattle that does this as a premium service to paying customers.
1: Hmm. So this is an application of automated reporting that maybe wouldn't be available to the public because it seems like they really want to sell this as a premium service.
0: Yeah, and I think it's kind of justified because the task of deciphering earnings calls is is a pretty challenging task, right? Um, and of course, the reason why it's challenging is because a CEO will do its, do his or her best to sound as positive as possible. So the algorithm really needs to sort of dig deep and strip away what, what's on the surface and try to um, show exactly what the, what, the, what the actual feeling of the call or what the, what the state of the health of the company is.
1: Yeah, yeah interesting. Are, are there other kinds of news you know, other than this financial reporting that are currently good candidates for the sort of automated journalism?
0: Sports is another example where it's pretty easy to fetch the score or even play-by-play um, events that are happening. So what, what's what been happening is, of course, should they just um, have AI sort of put that into an article with natural language. Um, It's pretty easy for algorithms to do that. Um, Another example, which is maybe a little bit more surprising is is with regards to reporting crime. So the LA Times uses a software to report on homicides and it's reporting on the victim's gender, race, cause of death, and so on. And um, in 2016, as another example, the Washington Post also famously um, has been sort of They've actually been awarded for their use of AI to cover the election.
1: Oh, wow. So then should journalists worry that they're going to be losing their jobs?
0: Well, if we take the glass half empty approach, just as with anything else, we might say that it's not like the machines are taking the pie and leaving none for us. (laughs) But rather the pie just gets larger, a lot of experts are suggesting the value that journalists add are with respect to the more complex processes of deep investigative reporting. So if machines can take over more of the mundane tasks of reading and reporting numbers, then humans are freed up to do more of the creative tasks. Like, for example, with regards to homicide reporting, maybe the computer gets the facts of who died, when, and where, and then the journalist can go out and get more information about the victim's life and family, and then try to describe the circumstances of the death in a way that is a bit more sort of digestible to the common public. And so, to summarize, are the jobs in the newsrooms disappearing? I don't think so for the most part. But yeah, if you are historically you know, someone who's been working on repetitive kinds of reporting, then certainly there is a risk of losing jobs like that. Uh, but there's a lot of room for making executive decisions, like what stories are important to report on and what is the relative prioritization of the components in a news article. And Associate Professor Matt Carlson at St. Louis University actually talks a lot about this um, in a book that he wrote called The Robotic Reporter. And, in a nutshell, he's saying that these old routine rules are being automated, but there's really so much more room for growth on creative contributions for journalists.
1: Ah, oh, great. So So maybe machines can't yet replace us. I mean, after all, how could a machine be as funny and charming as we are? <laughs> <laughs> yep. On a more serious
0: note, this whole thing about are we going to have a huge loss of jobs because of fill in the blank, right? Kind of reminds me of an instance more than 10 years ago now, back when I worked as an actuary, when our company was moving towards outsourcing a lot of the basic retirement calculations to a service center in Kentucky. And now these were a big part of our annual cycle of work. So the company had to work hard to assure us that there weren't gonna be massive job cuts within the company because they said that we were going to be freed up to do tasks that were less routine, uh, including having to double check all the numbers that we got from the service center.
1: Uh, so, so AI is a new form of outsourcing. That's what it seems like. Thanks for listening to Databytes. If you have any questions or
0: suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's Databytes with a Y.
1: And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.